Let's go to the book of Lamentations. Let me pray and then we'll get started. <clears throat> Father in heaven, thank you for meeting all the needs that we have. Thank you for the rain that you've sent. Thank you for giving us a roof to keep us dry. We thank you for your constant and overwhelming provision. You have provided in every way. and We thank you for that. Father, I pray that we might see every set of circumstances, every one of them, as useful in your hand. We thank you for your overwhelming sovereignty, your, the warmth of the sovereignty of God. We thank you for that. We thank you for Jesus who lived in our place, took the wrath away, has covered us, in his righteousness. We thank you. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that has indwelt in our minds and hearts, that has filled us, that has reminded us, that has directed us. Lord, we pray that you will use tonight for our own good, for our own conscience, for our own hearts. We pray that you would expand our vision of who you are. Pray that you would stir our affections. Lord, that we would learn to love you more. We pray for our children and the students. We pray for all of those that right now are with our addiction ministry. We pray that, that tonight might be useful. We pray that the gospel will be clearly spoken and, and seen and believed and trusted. We pray that you help us to preach the gospel to ourselves daily, minute by minute. To see the goodness of God, the goodness in all things. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's go there to the book of Lamentations. It's only five chapters. I had a lot of questions of what you were going to teach tonight. Was it going to be Jeremiah? We already did that. Was it going to be Ezekiel? Was it going to be Daniel? We have Ezekiel and Daniel coming up. But tonight we pause for five chapters in an odd little book that most of us don't know anything about. What we know about Lamentations is it's got one good verse in it. Anybody know the verse in Lamentations? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Mercies will not come to an end. Yeah, we know that one. But otherwise, we don't really know anything about Lamentations. Lamentations is about suffering. Suffering. How do you suffer to the glory of God? Moments in suffering, they become defining moments. Moments in suffering individually in our lives become moments in history that turn. I'm reading a book right now called uh, The Road to Surrender. The Road to Surrender. It's the very last bit of World War II and what led up to the dropping of the atomic bomb on Japan at Hiroshima and then at Nagasaki. What all went into that? What, what led up to the dropping of the bomb from the, the Japanese side, from the Russian side, from the American side? What were they thinking? What were they struggling with? What was happening before as Germany came out of the war and Japan was holding on? There were warriors there that would fight to the death. Their women and children would fight to the death. What was Curtis LeMay thinking as he was sending those B-17s across Tokyo Bay, dropping firebombs? What? What happened to the 80,000 people as the paper and wood homes burn up? What went into Truman's mind? Roosevelt's gone and Truman's got to make a decision 
with limited information. He gets dropped the information and he makes a decision that changes the course. I mean, the first bomb drops and 80,000 instantly. Second bomb drops 35,000 instantly. And then twice, three times that over the course of time. And, and history's altered. And in the middle of that altering is, is suffering. You can just look. I mean, if you, like, if you care anything about history, you don't have to look too far back. Just look and you see anything that happened in history that's noted, there's suffering there. We remember suffering. We don't like suffering. If you like suffering, you're a sadist. We like to prosper. We like comfort. We like win. But man, so much of life has to do with suffering. Let's get the setting. That's the introduction. Let's get the setting. What is the setting of this book? It is tied very tightly to Jeremiah. It has always been tied to the book of Jeremiah. It is probably written in the year 588 to 587 BC. That's when the, the southern kingdom finally fell. It's, it's written in the context. When you read Lamentations, there's just five chapters. It's written in the context of, of the great powerful country, nation, state of Babylon besieging Jerusalem. Besieging. For one year and a half, so for 500 days, the city of Jerusalem and around the walls is closed up tight. Babylon has surrounded. They have blocked anything from coming in. There's no water to drink. There's no food to eat. First the horses, then the dogs, then the rats disappear. Then cannibalism. It's a terrible thing. The person who wrote this book had, had actually eyewitnessed seeing people eat other people. The entire te the, the temple is destroyed. I mean, think about it now. Solomon's temple, the most beautiful, outstanding, the center of the universe for the Jews. The temple is destroyed. The walls are torn down. The palace is taken. I mean, it's destroyed. We don't know. It's hard for us to get that. We saw a little glimpse of it. 9-11, the towers came down, so we saw some of that. But, but even where we are, it's so far away. The man that wrote this book was an eyewitness to the siege of Jerusalem, the, the tearing down of the walls. And it, it's rattled him to the core. When you read it, he, it's, a, it's, a, it's a disillusion. If you've ever been hit real hard in the face and it's just stunning, there he is. Lamentations. You can get a picture if you like documentaries. If you were to watch some of the World War II documentaries and you saw a documentary on, on uh, Dresden when the United States and Britain bombed that, uh, that beautiful city and just, it just burned to the ground, or when the Germans in the, in the Blitz in 1939 and 40 in the Battle of Britain, when the Blitz came across London, just, just, just burn it down. You can see pictures of some of this desolation and, and, and get a feel. Lamentations is written in response to living through that. This is, we think it's Jeremiah. It's closely tied to Jeremiah. There's a verse in 2 Chronicles that seems to indicate that he probably wrote it. Lamentations doesn't tell us who wrote it. 
we're just surmising. It's there. It's probably him. There's a certain structure to it. Lamentations has this real stilted structure. Let's talk about the structure for a little bit. Lamentations is just five chapters, but it is so stylized, so structured. It's five chapters. They're five poems. Each chapter is a poem. Five chapters, five poems. It gets even more interesting than that. Chapter one, chapter two, and chapter four. Chapter one, chapter two, and chapter four are, are 22 verses apiece. And each chapter is an acrostic poem. So, and, you know, the Hebrew, the Hebrew alphabet is 22 letters. And so chapter one starts, the first verse starts with an A. I'll just use English letters. A, the second verse is a B, C. It's got so much structure. So chapter one is an acrostic. It's 22 verses from A to Z. Chapter two is like that. Chapter four is 22 verses. I mean, you can even see it in the English language how long it is. So you have those three acrostic po poems, one, two, and four. Chapter five at the end, it's not an acrostic. Chapter five is one long prayer. You ever want to just have something to guide your prayers? Chapter five is a good place to go. Chapter five is one long prayer. And then if you get to chapter three, chapter three, there is not anything like chapter three in the rest of the Bible. Chapter three is a triple acrostic poem. Triple. So chapter one, chapter two, chapter four, 22 verses. Chapter five, not a, it's, it's not an acrostic. Chapter three is 66 verses. And it is a triple acrostic. What that means is first three verses start with an A. The second three verses start with a B. The third three verses start with, I mean, do you understand how, how much time and effort and structure and thought went into actually writing? And chapter three in the book of Lamentations, uh, it's like that. It's a triple acrostic. It's longer, three times longer. And it is the actual centerpiece of the entire poem. You know, we, we, um, I'm reading books. I like to have, you know, the climax at the end. So everything builds in the story up to the end. And if you're reading about a battle, you know, the victory's at the end. If you're reading a novel, there's a, something at the end that grabs you. That's sort of our way of thinking. I like that. If, if the, if the, the highest point of the novel's in the middle, then I'm going to quit in the middle. And I read, I'm going to find another book. That's not the way this is written. This is written so that the highest point of the, of the poem, chapter 3, is in the middle. That's where the apex. It's like a mountain. One and two go up. Four and five go down. Three stands at the top. So intro, setting, structure. When you're reading chapter 3... Um, Chapter three is, uh, let's go back and think about chapter three. Chapter three is triple the verses. Um, it's the center of the book. Then I tell you that in 2 Chronicles, uh, 2 Chronicles 35 is where Jeremiah is mentioned. 2 Chronicles 35 verse 25 says, Jeremiah composed lamentations for Josiah. That's the only evidence. That, so that makes us think, okay, so lamentations could have been Jeremiah. 
Lamentations, um, although it's written, it was written after the destruction of the very first temple. Some of the first and second, third temple Judaism talk gets confusing. First temple built by Solomon lasted about three, maybe 400 years. 586 and 7, it is destroyed. This is written after the destruction of the first temple. The second temple is built. We have some literature that speaks to that in the Bible. Tells us about the building of the second temple. Second temple is built. It will be destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. Okay. Since that time, in synagogues, temple has gone away, we have synagogues. Since that time, Lamentations is read every year to commemorate the, des the destruction of the second temple in A.D. 70. It still, to this day, is an integral part of the conservative Jewish life because it takes us back to when they had a temple. And since then, there's been this this heaviness that rests on the heart of Jewish people. Because you used to have a building. You used to have a place where God met us. And then they look forward to that day and reading Lamentations is a reminder. But Lamentations for Christians, you've got to be careful with Lamentations. Like I read a book uh, a few years ago. That it was uh, about lamenting. And, and sometimes you start to talk about lamenting you feel like it's grief for grief's sake. Like, like what I mean is, I don't think you should suppress grief or put it down somewhere. It's not good to cry. That's not what I'm saying. Also, I'm not saying to have grief and a good cry for a good cry's sake or to find yourself sad for the sake of sadness. Lamentations instead strikes a balance and says we have grief to the glory of God. Lamentation is about having grief to the glory of God. It's here to help us. It's here to help us cope. Um, it's, it's here to help us cope by reminding us of God's presence. Lamentations is here to help us cope uh, by reminding us of God's rule. Sometimes we think in suffering God is not ruling. It's here to remind us that, that God is ruling. What does suffering do? We suffer. Suffering does a couple of, I'll give you three, maybe two or three things I think suffering does. If you're not careful, number one, suffering can, can harden us. And if you've known somebody that's gotten really bitter, They've had a terrible, hard life, and it has made them so hard inside and bitter and unreceptive and damaged. That's a tough place to be. That's what suffering sometimes does to people. Makes makes you hard. Or, or, or you've known people that suffering cripples them. Like something's happened so terrible that they just don't ever get over it. Sometimes it happens... Uh, if you lose somebody you love dearly and you just get, you spend your life asking why, you never get past it. So sometimes suffering hardens. Sometimes suffering cripples. So you're not moving anymore. Um, sometimes, I think this is what suffering should do. 
Suffering makes us pliable, pliable in the hands of God so that he can easily, he molds us, makes us pliable. All right, that's a little bit of an introduction and then the setting and also the structure. Let's go into five things that you, five things to do when you suffer. I got a good bit, bit, a good bit of this, uh, these five things from Mark Dever. He wrote the book, um, Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament Promise Made, New Testament Promise Kept. And it's funny, I'm, I've been using his book, he used it today. And uh, to his credit, I've gotten a text from him every single day for the last 30 days saying he was praying for me. That was, I was like, well, why did you start doing that? Is something going to happen to me? Because he hadn't been doing that. And it's like, oh, well, all right, well, thank the Lord. He's praying for us. So he's using, I used his part of his outline. What are the five things to do when you suffer? Let's go through it quickly. Here's the first one. Number one, when suffering comes, when suffering comes, you should confess your sin. I am not saying that the suffering is there because of your sin. The suffering there is to remind us of sin. It may not even be connected in any way. Join me there in chapter one. Let's just, since it's five chapters, we'll just try to go through portions of it. Look at, that, look at the desperate situation in verses one through nine. Jeremiah writes, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. Do you notice how he personalized and he, and he also uses the, the, the female, he's going to call Jerusalem a her. She who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces, she has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all of her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They've become her enemies. Then he tells us who he's talking about. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her. Look at, the, look at the confession in verse 5. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away captives before the foe. Look at the call to confession down in verse 8. Come down to verse 8. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turned her face away. Verse 9. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord. So he was describing. Now it's turned to confession. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. Sufferings are, um, sufferings are a message to us. It, God uses suffering, brings a message. A friend of mine named Brian Black, I've spoken of him before, Presbyterian pastor. He lives in Northern Ireland. Uh, he came and preached for me several years ago when he was here. 
His wife, I think I told you, had been hit by a car in a parking lot and was in a coma and just barely came out. I talked to them both today, and she sent this wonderful message over WhatsApp to me and Connie talking about how that suffering has, has been used by God, that God gave that suffering to her for the purpose of bringing glory to himself. Suffering, sufferings are a message to us. Sufferings are used to refine us, to, to discipline us. I'll tell you what suffering does. Suffering, especially of, of an emotional or a mental kind, Suffering is used by God to bring humility. And look, if God is opposed to the proud, then that suffering is your friend. It is there to keep us humble before God. When suffering comes, I would just say, it's good for us to confess our sins. Pain is a good reminder of judgment. When we see destruction, it's a good reminder of judgment. When you see a tornado, it's a good reminder of the power of God and what could happen. When suffering comes, we confess our sins. Let me give you a second thing. When suffering comes, we need to recognize our divine judge. Our divine judge. Suffering helps us remember judgment. Christians have become soft. So many Christians have become soft mentally and emotionally, and we forget to, to think through the wrath of God and the judgment of God. But because they're unpleasant to look at. But they are there for His glory too. The judgment of God also glorifies God. So when Jeremiah in chapter 2, let me go to chapter 2 now. Uh, in chapter 2, <clears throat> Jeremiah leads us and he tells us that the people, even under their judgment, even with the temple gone, with cannibalism happening, with the walls torn down, the palaces destroyed, they are deported when you read this, they are still under God's rule. Under God's rule. Let me read a little bit of it for you. Look who the destroyer is in chapter 2. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. God in his anger did that. He, God, has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the inhabitants of Jacob. He has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from then his right hand. When you go to verse 4, he has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand set like a foe and he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. Down to verse 6. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place, that's the temple, the Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath and in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar there in the Holy of Holies, disowned his sanctuary. 
He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. Verse 9. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. What a terrible thing. I mean, you keep reading from verse 8 to verse 14. It's this, this, it's this terrible punishment, and we read this, that it actually happened. Here's an eyewitness. This is not a prophecy looking forward, hey, if you don't turn around, God is going to strike you dead. This is Jeremiah sitting in a torn out city. Maybe when he was writing this scene, corpses. And saying, God did this. It's a terrible, it's a terrible punishment. They were called to recognize God as the judge. There in verse 17, let me show you. Recognize him. That the Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. You read all of that, you realize that God, God is the one who called Israel out. God is the one who led Israel through the desert. God is the one who took Israel over the Jordan. God is the one that gave the promised land. God is the one who raised up a people for himself. God is the one who would give us, I'm reading Samuel now, Samuel and then Saul. God did that. Then David to show us our need for a Messiah. God is the one who would be a part of the, of the destruction. He wouldn't just let it happen the way Jeremiah says. He did it. And it's good then for us to remember that Lamentations fits into the redemptive plan of God. It's good to remember that. That if you, if, you read, if you read the Bible and you read it as creation, fall, redemption, and then consummation and revelation. If you read it like that, you see Jeremiah fitting right after the fall, heading toward redemption. Here is a picture of, in fact, if you wanted to, uh, if you wanted to take Jeremiah, Jeremiah could be in this, in Lamentations, it could be a type of Christ in Matthew chapter 23 when he looks at Jerusalem and says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I've wanted to gather you, but you wouldn't have it. This could be a type of, of making us look toward Jesus. But if you just take it on face value without the type, you read Lamentations and we, we are to realize that God in all of it has a good plan that God is actually in charge. In fact, there are three, I have three New Testament passages that I'd like to share with you. A couple of them are very familiar, but sometimes familiarity breeds contempt. Let me give them to you. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Don't misuse this verse. Romans chapter 8, Verse 28, this is what it says. <clears throat> and we know that for those who love God, okay, if you love God in Christ, this is for you. For those who love God, all things work together. All things. 
Rain on a Wednesday night. All things. People talking ugly about me on Twitter. All things. For those who love God, all things are working together. He is not saying that all things are good. He says that all things are working together for good. How can that happen? Because there is a divine master in control of all things. And he is working them all together for the good. Verse 28. For the good of those who are called according to his purpose. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. This is working for your good. That which is causing you pain, that which is causing you impatience, that which is causing you to worry, according to Romans 8.28, it's working together for good. That needs to not be a cliche for you. That needs to be a verse that you take hold of and it makes you love Christ more and trust that he is working that out. Another New Testament verse. <clears throat> Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, what did he do? He endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. He holds Jesus up as our example of that there is something terrible. The cross is terrible. He despises the shame of the cross, and yet there is joy involved. Because going through the cross brings joy. That joy will be us. One other picture of... I'd like to give you this in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Turn back a little bit after you get to the Gospels. Come on, Acts chapter 4. Verse 27 and 28. One of my favorite pictures, one of my favorite pictures of how God can use and does use the sinfulness of sinful people to bring about his perfect plan. Chapter 4, verse 27, 28. <clears throat> For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod, Herod was a puppet in God's hand, and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do, those evil people did whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So, do you see the picture? They were terrible, but God, keeping his hands off of sin, was able to take the sinfulness of sinful people and use that to bring about his glory. Now, you should take some great comfort in that. Because sinful people are going to do sinful things that are going to hurt you deeply. But you can say that the God I worship through Christ is so sovereign and so big and in such control that he will use that to bring about his beautiful, perfect plan. Jeremiah can't see it, but he can point us to it. Let's go back to, let's go back to Lamentations. <clears throat> when sufferings come, recognize our divine judge. I didn't expect this point, this third one, 
Let's go, let's skip over chapter three. We'll come back to it. Chapter four. When suffering comes, we need to give special attention to God's leaders. That's all chapter four is about. When you read verses 1 through 12, gives you the terrible situation that they're in. Then verses 13, 14, and 15 of chapter 4. Notice the cause. What, what, the, verses 1 through 12 is the terrible situation. Verse 13 through 15, notice the cause. This was for the sins of her prophets. Jerusalem's torn down. Temple, torn down. What? The sins of her preachers, prophets. And the iniquities of her priest, who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. Talking about the, the leaders. So the, the priests and the preachers had become untouchable, unclean, couldn't be used by God. And then um, recognize the responsibility down in verse 16 of chapter 4. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priest and no favor to the elders. The priest and the prophets were responsible for leading God's people as shepherds and teaching God's word as truth and showing them God's way for life. And they didn't do it. I think this is direct. I think this is a direct application to America. I'm not saying that, that America is the new Israel. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that of all countries in the world, we probably have the most gospel preachers and gospel churches per capita, especially down in the southeast. I mean, I, when I lived in Mississippi, there was a Baptist church, Southern Baptist church, that's supposed to be preaching the gospel every three miles. Uh, there are 170 or so in, in our county here in Charlotte alone. Not to mention the Presbyterians. They're everywhere. They were here first. We just outnumber them now. And those churches, those voices, those, they're supposed to be the, the lighthouse will be held responsible for not saying, thus says the Lord. That's why the prosperity gospel is so terrible. That's why the shallow, the, the, the halfway, what I think is more dangerous is not just the prosperity gospel. You see that on TV and laugh at that. It's a joke. Most of us are not tricked by that. What we're tricked by is that which feels and sounds like the, the real thing, but is fool's gold. Where, where we coddle sin and don't apply the truth and, and work the gospel in and point to Christ and the sufficiency of the scripture and the sufficiency of Christ to, to, to save and to work in our hearts and minds to prevent us from sin. You know, it, Part of suffering should remind us of the depth of that. I don't want to spend too much on that because it's an indictment on preachers, and I, that's what I am. But I think it's worth noticing that in chapter 4, the blame is laid on those that are supposed to be teaching the Bible. Let me give you another one. Here's the fourth thing. 
Let's go back to, let's, let's keep going to chapter 5, then we'll come to chapter, chapter 3. When suffering comes, this is number 4. <clears throat> when suffering comes, pray for the future. Pray in desperate times. When you read, when you read chapter 5, from verse 1 to verse 22, I won't read it all. When you read that, what you have right there is one long prayer. Let me just read a little bit of it. Jeremiah prays. This is what he says. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We've become orphans and fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. That's a prophecy right there. Bottled water right there. <laughs> the wood we get must be bought. I mean, you just, you see the complaint, but be careful with the complaint. This complaint is a prayer asking for God to intercede. So what do we pray when we're suffering? I'm going to give you just a couple of suggestions. When you pray, ask for God, ask for help to endure temptations and trials. Sometimes what we're asking for, God, help me get through it. Sometimes that is the greatest Christian witness is actually getting through it. Ask for help, temptations, trials, and tragedy. Ask for help. Ask that God would give you just enough understanding to get through it. I mean, sometimes it would help if we just knew why. For, for whatever reason, it, it would help. And, and God is not inclined to give us all of the why, but he might give you just enough. Like you're never going to have all the, the, the solutions, but God sometimes in his, in his kindness just gives us just enough light that we can get through it. Ask God. Ask God to give you grace to honor him in your suffering. Back surgery, knee surgery, hip replacement, heart attack, cancer diagnosis, divorce, broken family, lost child. Ask God to give you that you would be given grace enough that you can honor God in that. That's what it's there for. It's a, it's a frowning providence, but it, it is a providence nonetheless. It is there for that. Ask God to, I don't know how else to say this. Ask God to give you good enough sense to make right decisions. You know how when you're, when you're, uh, when you're hit with something that stuns you, like when you're hurt real bad uh, and, it, and, it is, and you're disoriented in the pain, and in that situation, oftentimes you have to make decisions. It's a good place to say, God, I, I, I'm not thinking clearly. Please grant grace that I make wise decisions. If you're, if you're worrying and you're in the middle of it, I would, I would pray this prayer. Ask God to give you, to help you trust in future glory. Man, when, when, when the time of dying gets close, if you're close to dying, that's a good time to say, 
Lord, grant that I trust future glory. We don't think about heaven enough. We should think about heaven more. I should probably talk about it more. We're all dealing with what we have here. We don't think there is a future eternal glory that this time on earth is much shorter than that time there. It's good to think about future, to ask God to open your mind to think future glory. And then I would uh, just put one more prayer, and that is ask God to help you to be a witness in the suffering. Witness in the suffering. Okay, you have named the name of Christ. People around you know you are a Christian. Those that are without Christ know you are a Christian. They see that you are suffering. What is the witness from your suffering that you are giving? Ask God to make it a good one. Okay, now let's jump back to chapter 3, and I'll end it with, with the fifth one. Number five. When suffering comes, hope in God. When it comes, hope in God. Chapter 3 is the very center of the book. It is 66, uh, 66 verses long. Chapter 3, the situation has remained terrible. It is a terrible situation. I tried to paint some of that on the front end of what I was talking about, lamentations. But what is chapter 3? It's, it's, the, it's the passage we love so much. Let's go there. You should probably underline it in your Bible. Chapter 3, verse 22. What do we trust? But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Chapter 20, uh, verse 22. We trust the rock-solid love of Jesus. Verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And it's good to cling to that right there. It's good for you to make a vow that you will hold on to that. Good to, to make a vow that the that the steadfast love, the solid rock love of God will never, it will never abandon you. Ask God to help you to trust the solid love of, or to, to trust his, uh, his soul-saving mercy, mercy. Let me show you that in verse 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. His mercies never come to an end. You will never out the mercy of God. I'm not saying you should try. So please don't, oftentimes it's what we jump to. Okay, well, if that's the case, then let me just live how I want. The mercies of what, what, the, what, what the writer's telling us, that the mercies of God never, that's what verse 22 and 23 says, they are new every morning. The mercies never end. That means that when you, went, when you go to bed and you say your prayers at night, thank you, God, for a good day today. Forgive me for the times that I've sinned. These are the things I can remember. And I take these to the cross and claim the righteousness of Christ. You wake up in the morning and immediately have a sinful thought. There is mercy there at your bedside that has been waiting on you to wake up. And it is sufficient for that. It's what the text is telling us, that we can, we can trust his soul-saving mercy. When he saves us, the mercy of God never outruns. It is this ever-overflowing mercy that comes from the shed blood of Jesus for the Christian. So we, we trust in his soul-saving mercy. Look at that little verse 23, the little tag in verse 23. We, we trust in his life-giving promise. There's a promise in verse 23, the very uh, the, the end. 
They are new every morning. That's his mercies. Great is your faithfulness. That he will be true. He will do what he says he's going to do. He will get you through whatever it is you're going through. And the faithfulness of God is not just reliable. It is over-reliable. The word is great. It's, it's more. Like you need this much and he has so much more faithfulness. In fact, though, a good place, uh, let me give you a New Testament reference. It's in Romans. Romans chapter 5, verses 3, 4, and 5. For any of you that are new believers or you've just started really taking the Bible seriously, this is a beautiful passage here for you. Romans 5, 3, 4, and 5. <clears throat> Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? We know that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What a beautiful, we can trust in life-giving promise. Let me give you another one. Verse 24. Let's go back to Lamentations. Doing a little Bible drill. Lamentations chapter 3. You can trust in his heart-changing hope. See the hope in verse 24? The Lord is my portion, says my soul. The Lord is what I've been given. The Lord is what has satisfied me. When you're satisfied by the Lord, you're not hungry for, for junk. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, if I'm satisfied in Christ, that's where my hope will be. I give you one last one. And then I, uh, we're going to say a prayer and turn it over to... Uh, a little short business meeting. Verse 25 and following. <clears throat> the Lord is good to those who wait for him. And trust his process is what I've said here. You don't have it on your sheet, I don't think, because I thought of it late. Trust his process. The Lord is good to those who wait. To the soul who seeks him. You can't see the plan. You don't know the map. You don't have the full view of the globe in your what you have is the little road your own and the next street light and the next street light. God has that. And we trust him. The Lord is good to those who await the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, this is good, right? Though he calls grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Lamentations is a reminder that even when we grieve and even when we suffer, we even then can have hope. Let me say a word of prayer. I'll introduce our moderator. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the grace you give us in Jesus. Thank you for the hope we have 
and lamentations. Thank you for giving this nourishment to my own soul from your word. You're so kind to us, God, and we thank you for that. Lord, we pray that in your kindness you would wake us up tomorrow morning and enough time to spend time with you. We pray that in kindness you would draw those who are wavered into repentance. We pray that in kindness you would find us faithful as a church, faithful to serve you. Father, I pray that you would bring us back here Sunday, ready to lift up the name of Jesus, to worship with brothers and sisters, to relish the gospel. We pray you protect our church and use our church for your own glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.